Hello, and welcome back to the Rainy Night Radio. Today in our podcast, we discuss altered states of reality and their ability to promote healing through dispelling one's ignorance and creating realizations that help one bear live their life afterwards. We do this through the lens of lucid dreaming practices, such as the Tibetan yogas of dream and sleep, and through hallucinogenic drugs done through recent studies on patients that show mental state improvements over a long time in clinical trials. I highly suggest you research these studies or read The Tibetan Yogas of Dream and Sleep by Tenzin Wanko Rinpoche, a book I recently finished myself. I find this topic to be fascinating, though I hope you enjoy as you sit back, relax, and enjoy the Rainy Night Radio. Today we have a very special guest on Rain Night Radio, Henry Kendall, my former professor, um, and someone who's working on integrating yoga practices into psychedelic states. Henry, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. So my first question is, um, when I was emailing you about you coming on this podcast, you told me you were just on a podcast um, about something somewhat similar, so I'm interested what you came on to talk about and how that went. Yeah, I was, thank you. I was um, uh, interviewed, or I guess I, I was on a podcast. Podcaster, it was my first podcast ever, and he made it clear that it would function better as a conversation than, a, uh, than an interview. Uh, so we discussed, um, uh, psych- uh, actually a wider range of things than I expected, um, but the, the integration of yoga practice into psychedelic states, particularly for depression, uh, PTSD, other serious mental health issues like that. That's super interesting. I actually just read an article um, last night about how psychocybin um, yoga practices helps treat people with like PTSD and depression, which is really interesting. Um, is that treating people through them, like working through things in their mind that is like difficult, like for example, the trauma they might deal with in the past? Um, because like, of course, psychoactive drugs are known for helping people work through certain difficult things and coming to certain realizations. So is that how it works with um, PTSD and other mental Well, I think it is uh, on a a psychedelic by psychedelic basis. So Mm -hmm. my understanding, uh, and this understanding is very much in terms of yoga, in terms of my experience, and then with uh, with a a scientific um, aesthetic. Uh, But I'm not really that interested yet in the findings of, say, neuroscientists, um, because I feel like um, that tends to be encased in a lot of jargon. It tends to reduce complexities into a very simple form. And it's, um, anyway, it's not about the direct experience. So my understanding, for example, of how ketamine benefits the uh, depression patient and how psilocybin benefits the depression patient uh, is that they're different mechanisms. Mm. Um, so for ketamine, um, well, I'll, I'll talk about that later if you like. You mentioned psilocybin. So the, uh, the, probably the simplest way to understand the benefits, because they're claimed not only for depression, but also a lot of folks are using it for anxiety. And then people are also using it for general creativity and productivity. So probably the, the, the understanding that draws those things together and makes the most sense in terms of what the human is, 
is uh, is newness. The 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 psilocybin basically shuffles the the, the cognitive and, and, and perceptual um, state of a person, um, and it doesn't do so in a in a detrimental way. So, for example, something like alcohol also changes the conscious state, but does so in a you know roughly deadening way. Not that alcohol doesn't have its uh, its uses too, beneficial uses. Um, but it, but basically every drink you have, your IQ drops a bit. And then, you know, so if you were to try to use it for some benefit, you're up against that background. With, uh, with psilocybin, there's nothing like that. It's a, it's a change. Uh, the, the academic studies all over the place. Some of the, you know, some people claim to have found this cognitive benefit, others this drawback. But, but it's clear that it, like, it doesn't, it doesn't um, deaden or reduce the person's intelligence. So you have this, this opportunity where your, 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 your perceptual field is different, you know, your, even with very small doses, you're, there's a shimmer anywhere from larger doses where, where um, there can be quite stunning visual changes. And your, your emotional state is different. Every working, every working function of your mind is different. So the idea is that this newness allows for a window of learning. So a, a, a potential period where a person is more like a child in that their encounter with their environment and including their internal environment is is new and emotionally engaging and and stressful and stressful mm. something to notice about the, uh, the particularly the higher doses of these psychedelics is they often come with a lot of anxiety because uh, because suddenly if you're especially if you're an older person with a really kind of uh, solidified sense of self and sense of what your mind is and what the world is and then to have that th- suddenly um, you know thrown upside down is, uh, can cause uh, anxiety and negative emotions. And those would be referred to as bad trips. Yeah, bad trips. But you mm. mentioned um, um, trauma, and I think that that's my best understanding of, the, of these kinds of substances being so effective for things like that, is that the trauma itself represents, if I can sort of shift a little to yoga language, mm. a kind of stuck configuration in the, in the, in the chakras or in the body. Chakra is not in any esoteric sense, but just places where emotion is held in the body or the breath. So a person becomes, you know, either in response to some trigger or just by default, clenched and held and tight in certain places in their body. And this becomes just the background sense of who they are. It becomes deeply, deeply habitual. Um, mm-hmm. So what psilocybin will do, again, just as a default, is just shuffle the deck and suddenly you have a new you. Uh, um, and that is a profound um, opportunity to learn and essentially break old habits. Mm. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, so, where exactly did you learn all these yoga practices that you um, practice now, and um, how how did you become so interested in them? Um, well, I I've been practicing yoga ever since uh, I a theater director. You'll appreciate this mm. uh, being in the theater. Um, a theater director um, brought in a Tai Chi instructor um, during some of our, when I had just arrived in New York, we were doing this very experiment, experimental theater to dance space, actually, improvisational work. Mm. Uh, no, not comedic. <laughs> and the director would bring in um, a, a Tai Chi instructor to do yoga with us before the rehearsals. And I found it a little silly. I mean, I, it's, at first I was really like, what is going on? We're spending an hour doing body work before, you know, half of the rehearsal time. Um, but I felt so relaxed and, and flowy afterwards. Um, and it did benefit the work. And I, that really, my mind was open to that. I realized how much, um, uh, you could say karma or, or stuckness there was in my body and my, and my breath and my mind. And I just started to work on it. 
And over the past 30 years, I've studied many different forms, um, many different forms of yoga. Yeah, so if you want to know about any particular ones, but I've been, been doing it for, to benefit myself. And um, more recently, to I, I uh, got certified as a teacher mm-hmm. and to uh, help other people um, to make that kind of progress. I see. I feel like um, that must also be really helpful due to the interconnectedness between mind and body and when you're opening up the chakras. Like, for example, um, in the Tibetan Yoga of Dream and Sleep, the book you recommended for me last year, um, I remember a lot of times it would say how you should sleep in certain positions because it allows for better, like, airflow into your body or for the chakras to be more, like, um, open, um, which allows for you to attain greater states of awareness when you're sleeping. Mm. So I feel like in the same way I'm imagining when you're doing yoga well in a hallucinogenic state, having the chakras open allows you to like have more energy flowing through your body, allow you to attain greater realization. Yeah, that's great. Let's let's just let, just just in case some of your audience is suspicious of the kind of, of a new age jargon. Mm. What you mean when you say chakras being open is is awareness of your of your inner state, awareness mm. of your, your the feelings in your body. So most people, um, believe it or not, uh, they go around sometimes carrying around a lot of emotional pain or, or just or just a complex emotional uh, layout. Uh, without any awareness that anything is from the neck down, it's all in the head. It's all associated with these ideas, and the the thoughts can be correlated with those emotional states, those feeling tones up and down the spine. Uh, but the person will not necessarily be aware. Oh, I'm clenching my stomach. I'm seizing my breath right around the heart center. I'm clenching my jaw and my throat. So you mentioned the dream yoga. A lot of the emphasis is on the awareness of the throat chakra specifically, mm-hmm. because that's the sort of social energetic chakra. That's when you are having trouble falling asleep, you're, you're talking to yourself and you can actually feel, if you bring attention to it, the subtle jitters in the jaw and throat as you're essentially continually talking, even as you're drifting off to sleep. So um, the, the analogy to a, a certain kind of practice in the psychedelic state is you'll remember Tenzin Wangyal saying, uh, uh, talking about intention. Mm. And you, you set the intention prior to the dream, you go to bed, and if you're, unless you're a child, in which case you would have a, a immediate onset REM, you're going to go through some states of sleep before you start to dream. So the question is, how do you store this intention? I want to, I want to be aware that I'm dreaming. I want to wake up in the dream. I want to be lucid in the dream. How do you store it in the body when during a period, like deep sleep, where the mind is going to be completely offline? So, so, and, and the answer is really, you know, it's hard to put into words, but it's intention. It's, it's to rouse a feeling and, and, and you can express it in words so it can have a thought too. But most importantly, it has to be a real feeling. Uh, you can localize it in the gut, you can localize it in the heart, but this, this sense of determination, I am going to remember uh, that I'm dreaming when I'm dreaming and I'm gonna become lucid. So in the psychedelic state, uh, that's the, you know, in, in at least some of these practices, that's the goal is to set yourself up with an intention that's stored reliably enough in your body so that when your mind is highly altered, and in the case of the ketamine state, you might not even remember what the intention was. You might not know any words at all. Uh, you still have this intention deeply embedded. Yeah, and if I'm correct, with intention, a lot of time people apply the bodhicitta nature to um, intention for sleep yoga, the like desire to bring um, their compassion to... Um, 
break the suffering of all living beings. And that's what guru yoga is, if I'm correct. You're pretty much um, first feeling like love, compassion, everything for your most deep inner essence. And then you're applying it out to all other beings. And by like centering that determination, that intention, when you go to sleep, that's partially what's gonna bring you there, like keep you determined, stay on that lucid state or um, that um, conscious state when you're still in deep sleep. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, the most effective when I was when I was doing the dream yoga practice uh, nightly, the most effective um, means of of ensuring a lucid dream and what you know you could call a high level lucid dream, a mystical, meaningful lucid dream, as opposed to just a thrill seeking lucid dream. Uh, the most reliable technique was a loving-kindness meditation. So, mm. so, and again, this is not just a matter of rehearsing some thoughts. It's felt deeply in the body. And the result... So, so in, in other words, it could even be, if your only goal was technological, I'm going to develop a method that's going to allow me to become aware in the dream or the depths of a psychedelic state, uh, um, some kind of loving-kindness meditation, some kind of heart-opening uh, uh, heart chakra opening meditation is uh, is would be a good choice, mm. you know. So, yeah. but I'm not I'm not cynically saying that that's the reason the Buddhists do that, but that's uh, you know. Yeah, but um, works. Yeah, and going back to that, um, the other determination is lucid dreaming. Um, I feel like in the West we see lucid dreaming as a goal. You you um, work on certain practices, you achieve lucid dreaming, you fulfill your greatest desires, you do whatever you want that you can do. In Boo's practice, lucid dreaming is like the start. Once you achieve um, the lucid state, that's when you're able to start doing the cool stuff. That's when you're able like go out and realize the inherent emptiness of everything. Yes, yeah. well, if, if you're a Buddhist. So but the, the, the claim that really uh, appeals to me, or, I don't know if you're a Buddhist, but the claim that, 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 that sort of generally appeals to, uh, no matter what kind of practitioner you are, is that, the, is that any practice within that state is more effective. Mm. So that's, I don't know if Tenzin Wangyal actually says it, but Namkai Norbu, who was one of Tenzin Wangyal's teachers, does say it. Any practice done within the dream state is more effective. Interesting. Yeah. So, so, and that's ultimately why you're, you you seek lucidity so that you can, as you say, do these practices unencumbered by a physical body. So the idea is you make progress more quickly. So that's another underpinning of this approach to psychedelic yoga in the psychedelic state is you're going to actually conduct practice. I'm not talking about stretchy asana postures, but you can actually conduct spiritual practice, breathing work, uh, meditation within the psychedelic state and expect better results, mm. just like in the dream. Yeah, and what I find so interesting about that too is it's a whole different world from which we can draw value from and learn lessons from either psychedelic states or lucid dreaming. I feel like in the West, we feel like reality is what we want like we want to stay grounded here everything outside of reality is just for like pleasure entertainment or something that just like is a worse version a wired down version of what we have here it's like real fake right wrong like solid unstable and i feel like what's so interesting when looking at altered states of reality is it's a whole new place to grasp knowledge to understand the world around us yeah, well, or you're the world within us. Um, you're, you're. Uh, that's right. The 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 psychedelic state also shows, regardless of how you you describe the what you've seen or what you've uh, what you've experienced. It shows. William James had a quote about this that we um, that, that 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 there are other states of consciousness 
um, and that they're every bit as real. So Changtul Rinpoche, one of my dream yoga teachers, said, this is the ultimate lucid dream, and he gestured mm. at the entire world. He just put his arms up like, this is the, is the ultimate lucid dream. So the, um, the psychedelic state that is very, very subversive if the culture that, it, that we live in, which it is, is highly, highly, highly materialistic. <clears throat> and I mean materialistic in both senses of the word, uh, both you know, money and desire seeking, but also um, uh, convinced that the, the, the atoms and what they build from the, you know, uh, the physical world is it. Mm. <clears throat> and the psychedelic, and that the brain you know, exists as a physical entity, and therefore the brain is a machine, and so on and so forth. And when you talk about that grounding, that's what people mean. It's a, it's a materialistic perspective. The psychedelic state, or the dream state, if a person gets, uh, you know, masters it enough to know it, um, reveals that really the primary deal is the conscious state, not the, the external conditions. And that's very, very subversive because you can imagine uh, people who would otherwise contribute to the economy saying, no, I'm just going to meditate or I'm just going to uh, chant Hare Krishna. I mean, mm. the reason that Hare Krishnas are chanting Hare Krishna is it brings a tremendous sense of bliss. It, it brings a conscious state that's, you know, most people slogging through it in the material, materialistic society, if they could know that for 10 seconds, they'd be like, oh my God, that's what that's about. And that's not something that, you know, the momentum, whatever, you, I'm not going to lay any conspiracy theories on it, but the momentum of a materialist capitalistic society is very friendly to because um, it subverts it. It mm. subverts it. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, and building off of that, I think it's so interesting to see the way in which altered states of reality, like you're saying, are viewed by us or most people in the West today. Um, and first of all, they're like illegalization um, in the West, which stems actually from Western scientists going into um, indigenous cultures who had, um, this, this is solely about psilocybin, not about ketamine and all that. Um, but there was a um, like village in which everyone was practicing um, like psilocybin as a way to cure anxiety, depression, um, like negative mental states. And they'd have this um, ritual velada where in the evening they'd um, have a spiritual healer like help someone through their difficult states of mind, their difficult um, things they're dealing with. And they had very strict measures taken. You wouldn't have alcohol, you could travel um, for days after. You'd have to um, like stay around like peaceful area, be guided by the healer. And today I feel like when um, psilocybin is used recreationally, a lot of people are first afraid that it's gonna scramble their mind up and just make them like crazy. Um, people are worried like they won't function in society and then also there's a the whole thing of people using alcohol and other drugs mixed in with it. And that's the only time really um, the negative things come about. So I feel like today, a lot of the bad rep that hallucinogenic drugs and with it altered states of mind have really comes from like Western people like coming in and just like messing things up for it you know like oh yeah well yeah there is certainly um it is this is a very uh an unusual situation to have a prohibition on substances like this that are virtually non-toxic certainly far 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 less toxic than widespread substances of all kinds uh you know pharmaceuticals of all kinds um to have these kinds of substances banned with really harsh punishment uh, is an unusual state of affairs. If you look at, uh, you know, the if you look at the anthropologists who study um, all the known human groups, however large that catalog is of all the known human groups, 
um, the use of entheogenic uh, or psychedelic plants or fungi uh, is virtually universal. The only groups that don't use them are groups that don't have, uh, have them nearby, like the Inuit. Mm. Um, so, as you mentioned, they are circumscribed by ritual. They are um, they're used with a, a tremendous amount of intentionality, what we would call intentionality in the modern uh, psychedelic movement. Um, and and they uh, they generally produce results that are uh, that you know that are healing or or illuminating. Um, there there re- there is really a, a, a strong purpose behind their use. Um, so there's nothing wrong intrinsically with um, with a recreational use. I don't think um, I mentioned this to you before. I don't think there's a uh, a sharp line between recreational use, going to a, say a concert with your friends or a party, mm. um, and, you know, sitting on a, a meditation cushion in, or, or sitting in a, a circle, um, a drum circle. Uh, we learn a lot though from, um, uh, things like the ayahuasca ceremony, um, which is generally, um, involves music, generally involves a community and involves intention setting and other kinds of ritualized elements. And also, um, really aspires to uh, a certain kind of holistic um, uh, health perspective. People are encouraged to really clean themselves up prior to the use of the substance, and then the ritual is intended to transform you in the general direction of taking better care of yourself and caring more about yourself, um, and and also the interconnectedness with other beings. Mm. No, I definitely do hear what you're saying. As I told you before, like I have no hate for the hippies and all that. But what I do feel like is um, you can't maximize the potential of a drug that's meant for healing if you're taking it recreationally. Or you, you can stumble across realizations, but not to the same extent as when you come in with a certain intention when using it. So I feel like recreational use of the drug, um, there's nothing particularly negative about it, and it can also bring about realizations. But um, I feel like it's created a kind of stigma towards the drug where people think it's something where it's just like you come in for the purpose of fun rather than you come in for the purpose of realization. Yeah, I see. But why would the, why would the society decide it had to ban fun? I mean, this mm. is, these, you know, there's something very deeply pathological about, I, I appreciate your attempt to find a sort of rational way, and that's what we should do, try to understand what people are thinking when they you know, band together or they vote and wind up uh, banning psilocybin. But this is, it, um, you know, th- as it's unfolding right now, and it's a matter of time, of course, but in hindsight, it's going to look really quite ridiculous and tragic no, no, no. because a lot of people would have benefited. Um, yeah. I, I'm very much yeah. um, anti-illegalization um, yeah. um, of psychoactive substances. I'm just saying in terms of, like, uh, what led people to, like, ban it. Um, oh, I think it's more paranoia than what you're saying. In oh, other words, think I think you're, what you're saying makes sense, but any observation is going to show that with certainly something like magic mushrooms is at the end, and it has been studied. I mean, people mm. in public health know, um, like there was a major study on cannabis done in New York City uh, in the 20s. Uh, they very earnestly said, let's look at the public health uh, repercussions of this cannabis use, and they found almost no ill effects. I mean, in contrast with alcohol, which is connected to domestic violence, connected to self-harm, connected to all kinds of things. So that, so really, the, the powers that be, the society, has known that something like, uh, like magic mushrooms is not, um, is not going to 
you know, I mean, once in a while it will. Once in a while anything will. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not uh, nearly as dangerous as many, many other things which are tolerated or even encouraged. So you know what I mean? So I don't, yeah. I don't, I think that probably the best explanation has to be uh, something that refers to it being important in a society of extremely constrained and, um, you know, thinkers, mm. extremely constrained group thinkers, um, many of whom are, are agitated and depressed and have all these, you know, feelings stuck in their bodies that they don't even realize are stuck in their bodies, um, to, uh, you know, a, a, a real paranoia. I mean, when, in other words, what you said about about reality, we want to have this sense of reality mm. and, and, and this substance, or even the idea that someone else might use this substance and get a fundamentally different take on reality, that would only be threatening if my sense of my own grasp of a reality was very threatened and fragile. So, so that's the, I think that we want to go deeper. We want to look existentially. Why, why, um, you know, are, uh, now the question may be if the psychedelics are, are, um, are, uh, legalized, uh, how to use them best to relieve suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the rear view question is, uh, what, what can we learn about the depth of the suffering and the psychosis that led to the banning of them? Like most people, I'd say, when they use um, psychoactive substances, they don't even know the uses it has right, to help right, them attain right, realizations right. and healing because all the knowledge about the drugs is kind of just like shut out at this point. Um, and, and they're like, it'll scramble up your brain, you'll end up with whatever you get. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we can look at that, that paradigm, the recreational paradigm, and all that, that, you know, all the karma that spills off of that. And then you also have the medical paradigm, which is. You know, just just looking carefully at what's going on with the, the, uh, the with ketamine being used for an antidepressant, there are a lot of the same of, of not the same mistakes, but mistakes that will lead to the same effects that you're talking about, of mm. a, of, a, of a sort of lack of appreciation of of the possibilities that a, that something could offer. Uh, in the in the case of medical ketamine, it's it's the over you know medicalization of the whole thing, the idea that you're going to take a pill or get a shot and it's going to wipe out your depression. Mm. With no, with uh, the best that you that some of the medical community offers is this bullshit neuroscience speak, which the right. clinicians do not understand. They don't know what they're talking about. They they say things like, yeah, it, you know, it does this to the brain's default network, and it does this, and it allows this, and whatever. And the person, and that's a, a you know basically a theatrical placebo effect. The patient goes in thinking science is really powerful. Science mm. says this, therefore I can really believe that this is going to make me feel better. But that's really it. There's no sense of, for ex- even this, even ketamine reproduces a near-death experience. It replicates a, a near-death experience. So what does that mean? And a person going into that experience, what can you do to prepare yourself deeply for some glimpse of, you know, do you have a, do you have a religious practice? Do you have a mystical practice? Do you have any yoga or yoga-adjacent practice that you can actually bring to this? Um, and that is what I believe will allow you know, this to not backfire tremendously and have the, you know, a second war on drugs precipitated by, well, we let the psychedelic cat out of the bag and, and it went awry because people just became addicts. Mm. That could happen. Yeah. I mean, that's happening. No, that's true. Yeah. Psilocybin uh-huh. doesn't, doesn't lead itself to addiction, uh, lend itself to addiction. It would be difficult to become addicted to it. Uh, people can, but it's... Um, the way the tolerance works mm. and it's very low low toxicity but 
to your points about recreational use, even I have this profound tool that could bring me, you know, could, could stoke my creativity, could, could uh, spiritually help me out, help me navigate my sense of self, help me learn something that I care about. And if that only becomes something you, you in a very boozy state take to make the lights look brighter, that's just a shame. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, like I talked to you about before, like even in the worst scenario where one experiences a bad trip, um, and first off, I feel like the idea of a bad trip is something people have really created. I'd feel like bad trips um, is the wrong way to say it. I'd say a difficult trip is a better way to um, describe it because one worked through difficult things in their life. Like a lot of the time, realizations are entangled with the difficult things that come with it because when you understand um, like the true nature of reality and what's really important in your life, what, what's ridiculous. Like when you realize all the stuff that you clutter your mind and your life with, um, thinking, oh, this is so important, and you see, oh, wow, I didn't waste all this time. None of this really matters. I, I need to find like a true purpose to dedicate myself to. I need to find what I really care about. That's difficult. That, oh, yeah. That's what comes yeah. with those realizations. Um, but like I told you before, like even the people that had bad trips, 84% of the people in like a survey said they benefit from the experience. Um, and 76 reported like increased um, level of well-being, life satisfaction, all this stuff. Really high numbers and that's the bad trip. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also want to talk about how you were saying before with near-death experiences or how ketamine mirrors that. I find that near-death experiences function very similarly to um, psychedelics where it reaches, where you achieve a sort of state where you're separated from your like everyday pull where you're get, just getting like dragged along you know and everything you do there's a set place to go to from every place um and ego dissolution for example is recognizing one that there's no true self that there's no real um inherent nature of reality like we were talking about before and the way we're like this is real this is fake um and then also it kind of helps you realize um well, first, you're going to die. That's something you have to understand. Um, and second, you have to figure out what really matters um, in between that time you're living and the time you die. Right. Um, when you see everything else that you've just been cluttering your life with so you don't need to recognize death just kind of disappear in front of you. That's a really good insight. I think a lot of it is, a lot of the neurosis of the modern uh, society has to do with uh, a tremendous aversion to death and a tremendous denial. And then the general, uh, you know, all the emotions that come downstream from that and that exist because of a person's individual karma are locked in the body as pain. Mm. They are locked in the body as pain. Eckhart Tolle calls this the pain body, and that is the, the same phrase, and I'm not suggesting that one copped it from the other. I think it's, a, it's an independent uh, discovery of this, of a, or the choice of this particular uh, phrase, pain body, by Tenzin Wangyal. Mm. Tenzin Wangyal talks about the pain body. And, um, and that's to say the body. It's not the body of a, of a dysfunctional, anomalous person. It's the body of, a, of an ego. Uh, and the ego is turning the thoughts, and the, and the thoughts are, are, uh, are getting these responses in the body. And the thing becomes, uh, becomes painful because the ego is precious, and it prizes it, it, you know. Uh, however, the Buddhists are going to talk about it. However, the Hindus will talk about it. Um, but there's a, there's a state of suffering. So the psychedelic opens the mind to that suffering. Um, I, I, I would say more the classical psychedelics. I, mm. I look at ketamine differently. Again, it's, it, the, the psychedelics, all, all the ones I think are in that class have the um, capacity to 
to be used really productively, but they work in very different ways. Mm. Um, but that's the, 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 when you talk about ego death, really it's, it's as simple as um, the cessation of the constant uh, feedback wheel of thoughts and emotions, thoughts and emotions, thoughts and emotions. So because that, that feedback process is, is momentarily interrupted, the person will suddenly become aware of the pain. That's the bad trip. I mean, I spent four hours um, on my meditation cushion basically shivering. Like in like extreme uh, discomfort due to a perceived sense of being extremely cold, although I don't think I actually really was. Uh, that was a bad trip. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and other bad trip experiences involve just a tremendous amount of physical uh, discomfort. Um, and what that is, is that's, you know, like the yoga teacher says, the breaking of scar tissue. You have mm-hmm. these constructs that are that are built against that pain, against the acceptance of that pain, or the, or the you know, translations into words of that pain, I am going to die. Um, and, uh, and then suddenly those walls are, are missing. Yeah. And then you become aware of uh, your own suffering. Mm. Yeah. What you were saying before about Tenso Wangye, um, Rinpoche, and one of the most interesting things I thought about the book, um, was when I was reading it, and I, I talked to you about this before, but how he's discussing the dreamlike nature of reality in terms of how everything we experience, we think, um, oh, this is so real. This, this is where we are. But like, if you begin to think of everything like a dream, first it um, gives you a sort of awareness that you can like bring into dream practice, um, the lucidity where you're in your dream and you're thinking, oh, is this a dream? And that's how you realize and attain lucidity is like one of the ways you do that but also when just going throughout your life it helps you kind of detach from the ego which makes you just constantly think oh this is me yeah how's this relevant to me exactly exactly. these objects i'm um feeling attached to these aversions i have um all these intense feelings are just like based around yourself um also bringing it back to dream yoga um i find it really interesting how dream yoga is something that allows one to also explore death because mm. dreamlike um, states of mind allow one to experience things they just can't experience in waking life. That's how I said before, it's like a different world, a new opportunity for realization. And experiencing death is one of the things. Like, for example, in the Tibetan and Bon traditions, people use... Um, dream yoga to prepare for bardo which is the state after death that's right yeah that's right and i think that um that probably um the work of the yogis the 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 fruition of their work over centuries this dream yoga practice um relies both on uh yogis who attained those abilities through those practices and then built and taken whatever additional wisdom they had they had acquired and passing that on to the next generation uh how to to become lucid in the dream and how to explore that but also yogis, uh, a smaller portion, who had um, lived uh, uh, despite near-death experiences. Mm. So I'm suggesting that the Bardo teachings and the idea of how the, the senses uh, recede and how the hallucinations happen and all the, those things, the description of the Bardo state that the lucid dream practice is preparing for is actually partially empirical. That these are, these are yogis who had near-death experiences, those are not just a modern thing. I mean, it, it's easier to find them in the modern culture because a person can be resuscitated more easily from cardiac arrest, which is probably the most common 
you know, a correlate of a, of a near-death experience. Mm. But there no doubt would have been, over those generations, yogis who returned from near-death experiences. Yeah. And said, this is what happens when you're dying. I mean, because I, I experienced it. I mean, mm. one thing that's very... Um, uh, that a modern scientist will take note of is the fact that these near-death experience reports share a number of um, features, an uncanny number of features across wide range of cultures. Um, uh, they're, they're, it seems like there is a certain way that the, um, that the mind perceives dying. Mm. Yeah. It's really interesting. And also, not just death, but people are able to conquer all types of phobias when in lucid dreaming. Oh, well, I do think so. Uh, yeah, back to that. I don't know if I mentioned it, but um, Namkai Norbu, did I mention this? Who was Tenzin Wangyal's teacher, uh, said that any practice done within the dream state is five times as effective. Oh, he said nine times as effective wow. in his book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you didn't I don't know that. where the number nine comes from. Um, but the idea is that when you practice without, without the encumbrance of a physical body in a physical environment, uh, um, your, your practices, you mentioned that the lucidity is step one. Mm. So then the, what you're going to do after that in cultivating peace of mind or building equanimity or whatever you're going to do, whatever practice you're going to do, um, it, within the dream state is going to be more fruitful than if it were done in the waking state. And my personal experience, I have a, only a little bit of experience with this um, because I was not a prolific um, lucid dreamer. I, I, it, despite all the lucid dream practice, um, it was still difficult for me to attain. Uh, but once in a while, I would achieve lucidity and then practice, um, say, meditation within the dream state mm. and would find it, you know, maybe, maybe uh, um, uh, carried on by these uh, expectations, but the practice to be extremely effective. So waking up after having meditated, let's say, floating on a cloud for, uh, for just a minute and feeling incredibly refreshed like you'd been on a ret- retreat for a week or something. Wow. Yeah. You were telling me before about a second awakening with lucid dreaming. Well, this was um, was uh, something that Tenzin Wangyal said at the last uh, the last time I uh, I met him. Uh, it was after uh, teaching on uh, the yogas of breath and awareness, and um, and I was recalling it. It was a question and answer session, and people were asking questions about various things, and I decided to ask him about this thing that I'd experienced when I was practicing the dream yoga, uh, where I had had become lucid in the dream. And felt a great surge of accomplishment and wonder, like that that amazing rush that you get when you realize you're dreaming in the in the dream. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, I don't remember the, the details of the dream, but the dream started to decompose. So the dream starts to you do learn uh, whether or not I can't attest to the to the after death bardo, but you do uh, realize that when the dream uh, dissipates, it does so with certain features, like the, the, there's a geometric appearance to the, you know, the, the objects start to become more like, like math patterns, um, and, and various things happen. So I realized the dream was disintegrating, um, but I kept saying, this is a dream, this is a dream, this is a dream. I might have even spun, that's a, a Stephen LeBarge technique where you, you sort of trick your body into thinking that you're, that you're still dreaming. Mm. And I, and much to my joy, I found that I woke up in another lucid dream. So I, I woke up, but I, but I said, this is a dream. And I said, yes, it's still a dream. And I was yeah. unbelievably psyched. Again, that, that feeling of joy and elation. Uh, and then that dream eventually disintegrated. And then I realized I was still in a dream. And then I had fear. It was like, it was like absolute joy, absolute joy. And then on the third iteration... Fear. Dread, like yeah. like I'm going to be stuck in the dream. What is reality? What am I? Like Ooh. existential dread. 
And Tenzin Wangyal, with his very sweet smile, um, said, you know, what you think is not a dream is what causes the suffering. Mm. So really, this, this man who has built a tremendous career uh, helping people all over the world has published many, many books, the best, some of the best uh, books in the genre of you know, spiritual books that I've ever read, um, is really going about his day-to-day uh, as if he's in a gorgeous dream. Interesting. Everything is transient. Everything is changing. The only difference between that and the dream that you think you're in a bed for is that the, the nighttime dream is marked by, you know, lack of coherent physical laws, lack of stability of the environment sometimes, time jumps. It has a little bit less predictable behavior, mm. you know. But that's it. That's the only differences. But also the <laughs> the differences can also be part of what like brings about the realizations. Like for example, turning yourself into like an orange in a dream or into the wind, you can realize that there's no true self, and you can realize how funny it is to yeah, think right. of yourself as um, you know, looking in the mirror, seeing that, and saying that's me. That's like the ego. You can help. Um, dissolute the ego in a dream just as you can on yeah that's really cool Uh, turning yourself into an orange or the wind that's great because that that experience sometimes does happen deep in the psychedelic state and then and that's and that's the one of those kinds of ways of putting it of like why why did i come out of this feeling transformed um because if you realize that you're wind you're not just obviously two things jasper and the wind if you're if you're the wind then you've essentially proven that you're everything and also, um, I was talking with you about this before, but how every state in a dream, you can think back to where you came from. It's like a warped world where time doesn't flow natural, and you can be one moment in your living room, and then one moment sitting on a cloud, for example, and then that's how you realize, you're like, wow, um, it's it's just absurd the way everything connects together. Like, there's no steady pattern that... Um, interconnectedness of reality is just um, the emptiness of it. Right, you know? that's cool. The, 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 the fact of the conscious state being the primary thing and the physical material universe being something that happens to be discovered by this particular kind of conscious state, you know, a human in this universe, that's very hard to wrap your mind around when just when your whole existence is in, uh, the, in the material world uh, and there's no practice to stop the mind or quiet the mind uh, because the physical world is marked by a tremendous um, consistency. I mean, that's what science, you know, that's why there is such a thing as science. That's why there are now fundamental theories that are deeply mathematical and some, in some cases exclusively mathematical because this, this physical universe, when we test it, seems to produce the same results. I mean, Mm. for the same experiment over and over again, unlike the dream. Yeah. So that's very tempting then to say, well, the physical brain is the thing that's real and the dream is this illusion, you know, whatever, this, you know, whatever. If the conscious state is primary, then the question becomes more, you know, what are these different states that we find ourselves in, in terms of their environment, you know, and the, and this particular physical universe is just a dream. I mean, physics tells us how it, the various components, how the Earth will end, how the Sun will end, how the entire universe will end, um, and that is to say it's going to be gone. And being going to be gone, just to be clear about the actual experience of, of consciousness, it's always in the present. 
So if there is a present, you know, from that that reference point, the universe is gone. It's in the past. Then it's in a sense it never is. Hmm. I mean, it'll just like the way the past feels now. Yeah. Like here we are, right? We know that Isaac Newton lived, but what exactly is Isaac Newton? Everything that's in the past, it's no longer. Yeah. But all the moments that Isaac Newton had in his, you know, human life were now. This is now. So, so in a psychedelic state, when there's, um, when you're sort of watching this, you know, you're journeying. You're going to different places. I mean, this is me in the dark. Um, I'm not. I mean, when you're interacting with the physical environment, it is more of an experience of um, the environment has changed, as opposed to in the dark. The best. Um, sensory deprivation you can manage then it's just pure creation of your mind your mind is just creating from scratch and or from the karmic you know dispositions of your body and and you wind up with a sense of uh the consciousness the conscious state is primary that's what's primary and the fact that we find ourselves in the in the physical universe that's really interesting but that's but the, it's the consciousness that's primary. And then as soon as you have that, and then you reduce the, the thinking about consciousness, you realize that every human then is essentially the same as you. Yeah. Um, which, of course, goes on to be a vehicle for compassion. Um, that's right. Just like all other realizations that can be attained from dreaming. Right. Um, and also just going off of this, I, one of my favorite things I do have to quickly include is um, last night I was reading this article when I was talking about a parallel between realizing in lucid dreams that you're dreaming and then gaining control over the dream to recognizing um, like certain emotions that arise and how they um, are just like inherently, like when you're living um, your life and it's just like, it feels like it's going on a straight line, moving along in time. Um, whenever you experience a certain emotion, it feels like that emotion is the reality you're in yeah, for that yeah, moment. Yeah. You're just like stuck there. Um, and that just feels like so real for the moment. Um, and only if you realize just like with the dream, you're like, oh, wow, I'm dreaming. Um, then you can control it with like with the lucidity. Um, right. Well, and fear tends to vanish a sense of like mm-hmm. a sense that that's right. So that's what Tenzin Wangyal means is what you think is not a dream is what causes the suffering. Yeah. yeah. So here we are, you know, we think, oh, we're stable. We have a, a memory that goes back more than a few seconds. If I turn away and look back, the, the physical reality is still the same. So then I, that, I judge that to be the real deal. That's the real deal. But, it's, but if we just, just really ask what's going on, there's a conscious state, it's unfolding, and it's characterized by constant change. And there's only, the only experience is in this moment. So the only reason that you know that there's any progress, you know, any flow or whatever you would call it is because of uh, accumulation of memory. Wow. So the psychedelic state is, you know, on one hand it can be, if it can be remembered, it's, a, it's an accumulation of some very strange memories. Um, but it's also, again, you know, um, uh, um, uh, uh, it's, it, it, it just throws all kinds of questions. Uh, maybe that's not a strong enough way of putting it. it, it it's not going to necessarily destroy the ego. The ego is a robust mechanism, mm. but it's certainly going to throw up a lot of questions from which a person can get leverage and say, wait a minute. Like William James in his book, you know, uh, uh, I realized that there's the, he was using nitrous oxide actually, but fill me a screen between this reality and these other states of reality, that are, or other states of consciousness that are just as real. Mm. Yeah. Just to bring everything together, the um, article you sent me when I told you about this podcast about how people are finding a similarity 
between hallucinogenic states and lucid dreaming. So what exactly is like the correlation in the article you find between um, like lucid dreaming and um, psychoactive substance mind states? Well, let me say, oh, so I just wanted to clarify for your yeah, listeners yeah. Uh, that this is, um, is uh, this study was done by comparing the word choice using, you know, sophisticated computers that look at, that's the kind of, same kind of computer that's going to prove that this or that is not written by Shakespeare, mm. linguistic analysis, uh, comparing um, lucid dream reports, and I'll also mention a second near-death experience reports, with all of the trip reports in the Earwood database. So we're talking 10, maybe hundreds of thousands of trip reports of the, the full range of substances, I'm including all the psychedelics we could talk about and many we have never heard of. And comparing those, just asking the computer which have the greatest uh, linguistic similarity to uh, the lucid dream report, because there's also large databases of those. And, the, and those turn out to be the ones atop the list are the classical psychedelics. LSD is at the very top. Mm. Um, in the case of the near-death experience reports, it's dissociative psychedelics like ketamine that are at the very top, although psilocybin and LSD are still toward the top. Uh, the things that people consider drugs, uh, you know, that, I, well, I, that I consider drugs, I mean, some people talk about all these things as drugs, but the drug drugs, uh, you know, the um, uh, uh, Valium-type drugs, the, the, uh, the heroin-type drugs, are at yeah. the very bottom of these things. Mm. They, they have uh, no similarity with lucid dream reports or near-death experience reports. So, so, that, so that, that just means that what it is, which is that people are using similar language to talk about their LSD trip as their lucid dream experience. Um, I could also mention that um, there's uh, an Alice, uh, my daughter, who's a, a really proficient uh, lucid dreamer, talks a lot about the experience of the so-called awake-induced lucid dream, which mm -hmm. is actually what the Tibetan yoga is aimed at. It's a direct uh, a transition from the waking state into the dream. The wild dreams. The wild, as opposed to the much more common for the Western practitioner, particularly a dream where you realize you're dreaming within the dream mm. by noticing something peculiar in the environment or, or just having the habit to ask, am I dreaming, and then discovering that you, in fact, are. Um, she talks a lot about the sensory and emotional qualities of that transition and how there's uh, a surge of energy. She talks about where it can be very uncomfortable. She talks about where it lo it's located in the body. And this is something that, you know, dream yoga teachings are going to refer to. What, you know, which senses are activated in which order uh, as you as you as the dream begins, um, it's really wonderful to experience this for yourself. And basically, I notice a lot of similarities in the way that she talks about those those feelings and those states. As for me, during the so-called come up phase of a psychedelic of, a, of ex experience with the classical psychedelics, mm. LSD or psilocybin, a, 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 a strong sense of of a very emotional type of pain or something desiring release. Uh, located near the heart um, and things like that. And um, so it's very possible that, that, you know, when there's sufficient technology that it will be established that the brain in the lucid dream and the brain in the, you know, profound LSD trip are similar. Mm. I mean, I'm assuming that'll be true. Yeah, but what would that mean? Is there anything that would really... Um come about by drawing the parallel between these two things? Well, again, the dream yogis are saying after hundreds of years of practice, uh, uh, practices done within the dream state uh, are more effective. Mm. So that's why they're doing it. I mean, they're dream yogis. That was their yoga. I mean, they're yogis, famous yogis all through history 
that where they were dream yogis, that's what they practice mainly in order to, all, all yogas are fundamentally toward the same goal. So, the, so to say that dream yoga is a yoga is to say it is, it is a, you know, a, a discipline, a technology for attaining a certain kind of realiz- realized state, a realization of your true nature. A realization of your true self or the truth, however, however you want to put it into language. So if that's true and the psychedelic state, certain psychedelic states essentially replicate the, the lucid dream in the same way that ketamine replicates the near-death experience, then we would be amiss. We yogis would be amiss to, to pass up that opportunity to learn yoga practices that can be conducted within the psychedelic state because they're going to be more effective. And that includes... Practices that will reduce depression, uh, will will reduce neurosis, will will uh, uh, help deal with trauma. All of the aims of conventional psychotherapy will be, presumably, but I think really plausibly, will be uh, uh, aided by, you know, just as the dream yogis are doing within the dream, the practitioner uh, practicing in the the uh, psychedelic state. So fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, are there any final comments you have about um, altered states of reality, either through lucid dreaming or um, hallucinogenics? Before we come to a close. Well, thank you. This has really been a pleasure. I'm really glad that you and um, and other uh, folks are interested in this. I sense a lot of interest and openness uh, among young folks. Uh, it's a sad thing that we had 50 years of prohibition, yeah. uh, but this is an auspicious time, but the dangers are also uh, are, are all dangers of exploitation, of capitalist exploitation, of, of medical gatekeeping, of all kinds of things. Those dangers are really present. And what I would um, suggest uh, from a yogic perspective is that the psychedelic uh, should be seen as, uh, as an upaya, or a skillful mm. means, uh, a tool, rather than an end in itself. Um, so, you know, just as the dream yogi is practicing in order to, we talked about this earlier, in order to essentially turn the dream with all of its, its bizarre happenings into something extremely placid and, 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 and stable and ordinary, and then the, eventually that vanishes, uh, the, uh, the psychedelic should be used to benefit the person uh, in terms of their mental and emotional health, in terms of their spiritual path, um, but then should be abandoned. Alan Watts said, uh, when you receive the message, hang up the phone. That's a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Henry. Thank it's you, Jasper. a wonderful conversation. And to all you listeners, thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you next time on the Rain Night Radio.